John is writing, look at this love from God. What planet did this come from? So foreign to us, so unique. Can you believe this kind of love God has for us? And look further at what he writes, that God bestowed on us. Don't miss that. It means we didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We didn't buy it. It was bestowed on us. It was gifted to us. This is an identity gift to us. When God saves you, everything changes. No matter what your life was like before salvation, you are a different person now. One example of that change is that you are given a brand new identity. You've become a son or daughter of God. That's really significant. That new identity was part of God's gift to you, but it comes with implications. The implications are that you now live like a son or daughter of God is supposed to live. Are you currently living in line with your identity We're looking at our new identity in Christ today on Wisdom for the Heart. Here's Stephen with a message called Identity Gift. Just about every month or so, I'll see a news report or read an article in the newspaper about this ever-increasing problem known as identity theft. According to the North Carolina General Statutes, which I went online to read a little bit about it, chapter 14, a person who knowingly obtains, possesses, or uses identifying information of another person living or dead with the intent to fraudulently represent that person for the purpose of making financial or credit transactions in the other person's name to obtain anything of value, benefit, or advantage. And it goes on for a few more pages. In other words, somebody uses your name your personal information gets a hold of your credit card number. And I read in this research that about 100 million credit cards are on sale out there that they've gotten a hold of. And for those of you that have a really good credit rating, they might go for as much as 50 to $60. And they use them one time, which is a good incentive to have a poor credit rating, just so you, you know. We are dismayed and, and troubled and bothered and concerned And just about every account you have now has the addendum, would you like protection from identity thievery? But has it ever occurred to you that Christians are, by definition, people who have someone else's identity? We're called Christians having taken the identity of Christ as our own. We didn't steal it, but we weren't born with it. Something happened right? Something happened to us. We were born again by faith in Christ alone and inducted into his family for as many as received him, Jesus Christ. To them he gave the right to become members of his family, children of God, John 1, 12. So the good news is your new identity wasn't some kind of identity theft. It was actually an identity gift. God gave you the gift of his identity, when he made you a member of his family, 
And he evidently gave you the power of attorney because you can sign in his name. You can transact business in his name. You can speak for him. You can represent him. Imagine all of that is true. He even gave you his son's name, effectively calling you Christian, even though that was a a derogatory name the world came up with. That is a delightful name to us and the plan and purpose of God. It simply means we are kin to Christ. We belong to him. We're in his family and we're co-regents with him in the coming kingdom. I want to return your attention to where we left off in our study through 1 John and chapter 2. Because John is about to emphasize our new identity basically affecting all of our activity. Not only affects our future responsibility, but our present activity. We're going to pick it up at verse 28 and we're going to get through verse 1. I had hoped to get through verse 3 because as I read this, this paragraph, four words came to mind, but I'm only going to have time for two of them. So we're going to come back and finish up the paragraph. But I want to give you two words that are characteristics of our new identity. The first word is simply this, preoccupation. Preoccupation. Verse 28, 1 John 2. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, literally that class condition, since you know that he is righteous... You also know by experience that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him, is kin to him. Now let's go back and take a little slower look at this. Verse 28 begins with the words now and now. And I would agree with others that this would be a great place to begin chapter 3 because it is a new thought. And I'll show you why in a moment. In fact, just as an aside, if you're new in the faith, you may not know this, but chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. They're not original to these letters. In fact, John is simply writing a letter. He would use paragraphs as he wrote, but that's about it. Chapter and verse numberings were added much later by the reformers as study aids, and they are wonderful aids in our study. We think of going to this verse or that chapter. And if you keep one translation throughout life, as I've done with the New American Standard, for the most part, I know which side of the page it's on, and that helps me too. The first time an English Bible included both chapter and verse numberings was the Geneva Bible, printed, first published in 1560, and then most of those divisions were copied over by the King James translation that came along a few years later in 1611. The reason I think that it would be a great place to start a new chapter here is because he begins with this emphatic particle, noon, and now, or and since this is so. Little children, he writes, abide in him. Simply put, have fellowship, have communion with him. And then you'll notice down in verse 29, there's this command to practice righteousness. I love the idea of translating it that way, practice righteousness, because it's something you never perfect. It's something you practice, just like you do with a piano or maybe some other instrument that you're learning. You don't consider yourself to have mastered it. You practice it. Practicing righteousness, by the way, is not what you want to do in hopes of producing a new birth. It's what you want to do as proof of your new birth. It isn't so that you can gain 
a new identity with Christ, but because you want to reveal that you're kin to Christ. And this is your identity. Think of it this way. Your new identity is God's gift to you. Practicing your new identity is your gift back to God. Now, the Apostle John, if you've been with us in our study, you know he's already talked about abiding, fellowshipping, communing, and he's already talked about practicing righteous living. But in this new chapter of thought, John has this preoccupation in mind. It's in his mind. He wants us to be in our minds. A preoccupation for every believer's heart and mind. And it's this, the soon appearing of Jesus Christ. Did you notice? Go back to verse 28 again. Now little children abide in him, have fellowship with him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. His coming is the word parousia, which literally refers to Christ's presence, being alongside us. The parousia, the coming of Christ, is actually twofold. It includes the appearing of Christ in the clouds for his redeemed, which would be at the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, and then following the tribulation, his coming from the clouds with the redeemed as he sets up his kingdom on earth, Revelation 19. Now, since John here in this text is referring to a believer then being ashamed at Christ's appearing, the reference would be to the rapture and that which would follow the bema seat. The bema is that time of evaluation, that time of judging the activities of the believer and rewarding in grace and goodness those things which he actually motivated in and through us. It's a, it's a reference to that bench where the judge sat in Paul's day and where athletes stood following the Olympic Games and they were rewarded for the way they ran the race, those who were victorious. Upon that bench, judges sat and rendered judgment based on the cases that they heard and the evidence presented. So Paul uses that and John uses that also. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, and you can read that at, at, at uh, your leisure. But upon that bench, then, Jesus Christ is pictured as, as coming alongside, that is personally reviewing every believer's activity and everything of, of a believer's life that is worthy of being rewarded. It isn't a time to say, ah, look at that sin, or look at that sin that's been dealt with. But that sin does affect certainly the way we've lived, the way we've run our race, which will then impact the way we are rewarded. Now, obviously, for Christ to come alongside us individually and evaluate our lives will produce immediately in every honest heart in here, including mine, a sense of regret, a sense of shame. I mean... Who in church history, all of church history, will not wish they had remained more passionate for Christ, more preoccupied with his coming? Paul, the older he got, the more evil he became in his own thinking. So that at the end of his life, he says, I am the chief of sinners. Nobody beats me. It's sinning. 1 Timothy 1.15. He would say, I'm going to refuse to boast 
to glory in anything other than the cross of Christ. Galatians 6.14. I mean, if not Paul, who would ever be confident? Your translation may even refer to boldness. This unwavering confidence of standing before the holy gaze of Christ our chief shepherd as he evaluates our lives. So what is John talking about? This verse, frankly, has always troubled me, and I'm glad I had a few days to to work it over. What is he talking about here? That we're going to be confident at his evaluation, which follows his appearance in our lives. Well, this may be tedious, and I'm sorry, but let me take you through this, and I want you to stay with me because it can impact so wonderfully so many things. The word John uses here in verse 28 for confidence Parousia is a word in the ancient times that actually referred to candid speech. In fact, it came out of the political world for a candidate to speak candidly. What that meant was he would tell the truth. He had no hidden agenda. In fact, it was translated open speech. And that's the idea. So by the time the first century arrives and and the apostles are by the Spirit of God choosing language, this word referred and could be translated here, I believe, clearing up some confusion with the word that it became to be understood by, simply this, openness. You might write that in the margin of your Bible. Or transparency, openness. So go back to the text and it it would say something like this, so that when he comes, we may have transparency, We may have openness and not shrink away from him in shame. Well, how do you have transparency when he comes, should he come today, and not shrink away from him in shame? That obviously goes back to our our understanding of confession, doesn't it? Of having a transparent walk with Christ that is open. There's nothing hidden. There isn't any sin we're managing as if he doesn't see. Oh, I'm not going to worry about that. That's not a big deal. All of that kind of conversation simply manages sin and is anything other than a transparent, open life before him. And and, and the thought occurred to me in my study, and let me give you a little pop quiz. Can you remember someone in the Bible sinning and then God appeared And because of their sin, they shrank away rather than enjoyed his coming. Let me hear you. Adam and, okay, I think it was her fault too. She ought ought to be included in this whole problem. All the women are going, Adam, Adam. And all the men said, Adam. (laughs) Got some wise guys right down here that want lunch whenever it comes. Okay. Adam and Eve. And why did they shrink away in shame? Because they're hiding sin. They're hiding. They're, they're, not, they're not running toward him. Oh, forgive us for what we've done. No, we're going we're to hide this one and hope he just doesn't see us hiding behind that tree. Listen, I don't think any believer, and if it's understood properly, I don't believe John is saying that we're ever going to reach a point where we're going to stand before the Lord with some kind of confidence in ourselves and say, okay, Lord, great. It's finally my turn. Got all those other people out of the way. It's my turn. And am I ever confident that I'm going to be crowned? <laughs> yeah, you're going to be crowned. All right. That's the way I think of it. No, I believe the idea here is that when Jesus appears for us, which means we will appear before him, 
that we will actually receive his presence with openness. We, chief sinners as well, but we've lived up to that moment. This is the encouragement to live up to this moment, confessing openly with open speech. In fact, think of the word confession. It means saying the same thing as God. Not hiding anything. Openly confessing our sin to him. So that when he comes, there's no hidden agenda. And we can greet him with openness, transparency. We're not going to look for a tree to hide behind. Because up to that point, this is the encouragement. Not to build up in yourself some kind of confidence. Not to have all these things, okay, I got one, two, three, four, five, now I'm ready. Lord, please come now. No, not that at all. But I'm confessing. In fact, I think those who know Christ the longest, you'll find that the distance between them sinning and them confessing grows shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And their awareness of their sinfulness grows greater and greater and greater and greater. Now, there are some here who've written on this text, men I respect, say that John isn't referring to Christians at all. Because obviously you've got a little problem if you're talking about somebody shrinking away in shame and they're not confident. Well, I think that misses the entire point, but they would say that John is referring to Christians who are confident and that those who shrink away in shame, well, they're just not legitimate, genuine believers. And they got finally found out. Well, the trouble with that is multiple. First, if you go back to verse 28, look there. John is writing to whom? Now little children. Now, little children, he's talking to believers. Secondly, John tells his children that the purpose for abiding in Christ, that is, having communion with Christ, is for the purpose of not being ashamed at his coming. That reference to the rapture, he's not coming for unbelievers anyway. Thirdly, John uses the middle voice, for those of you that really like the technical stuff, for the shrinking away, meaning that they're feeling their own shame. Believers, children, little children, those in the faith. This is a reference to the believers' feelings of shame. And fourthly, for those of you that are in second semester Greek, John uses the first person plural, subject of the verb. In other words, he's not saying that all those, you know, all those fake Christians, all those not really genuine Christians, they're going to shrink away. He doesn't say they, he says we. So that we, little children, will not shrink away. In shame. See, the picture John is painting for us here is not of an unsaved individual, but of a born again believer who has allowed sin to abide in his life rather than abiding in Christ. He's fellowshipping with sin rather than fellowshipping with Christ. And that unrepentant believer, were he to be in that state of unconfessed sin when Jesus comes, his level of regret and shame will only increase. Just as there will be levels of reward, levels of responsibility and authority in the kingdom, so there will be levels of shame and regret. In fact, I find it interesting that John is the only apostle who refers to this again in his second letter that we'll look at more carefully when we get there, Second John and verse 8, where he talks about because of unrepented sin, forfeiting your full reward. He's talking to Christians. He's not saying you're forfeiting your salvation. You are forfeiting your full reward. 
an obvious reference to the Bema seat evaluation of the believer before Christ. And I think that's the concept here in 1 John chapter 2. The idea of remaining totally open before the Lord, daily confessing, sometimes moment by moment, sin so that we can enjoy his abiding fellowship and communion with him so that should he come at any moment, we will have openness before him. The slight, so to speak, daily confession has been taking place. No shame as he evaluates our race, our run. By the way, the incentive here isn't just that we might, you know, we're going to hurt ourselves. Man, I could have gotten another sapphire for my crown, but forgot to confess that. That's not the idea. It's deeper than that. So that we might not just hurt ourselves, but so that we might not hurt him who wants to abide with us in communion. So that we don't grieve him so that we don't rob from him worship, we should be giving him daily. But sin robs that, doesn't it? Warren Wiersbe writes about a comments on this text by writing about a group of teenagers who were enjoying a party, and then one of them suggested they go over to this night spot and have a good time. And one of the young women, Jan was her name, said to her date, well, that's what you're going to do. I'd, I'd rather you take me on home. My parents don't approve of, of that place. To which one of the girls responded sarcastically and said to her, Oh, you're afraid your father will hurt you, huh? No, Jan replied. I'm not afraid my father will hurt me, but I am afraid I might hurt him. Isn't that a maturing child? So also with us? Is it just that we're going to be hurt? We're going to miss something? We're going to get one less ruby? Or that his heart is hurt? And worship doom is robbed. John is effectively saying, let there be this preoccupation with living for him in light of his coming for you. So that there is unmitigated joy and openness because there's a life of confession of sin to this one who is our mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This preoccupation should stay on our minds that he could come today. That's the preoccupation of those who are captivated by their new identity. There's one more word, the word exhilaration. Preoccupation and exhilaration. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God and such we are. The opening words here of this phrase, John is literally saying, Look, your translation may read, behold. You can render it, look at this. He's so excited about it. What what are you excited about? Well, look at this manner of love. Look at this great love. Look at this kind of love. Different ways that's translated. It's a word, this manner of, this kind of, this great. Rare in the New Testament. A literal translation is from what country? It's almost a question. What country did that come from? In other words, it's so foreign, it's so unique. Where did that come from? It implies a a reaction of astonishment mixed with admiration. You you marvel, you're amazed. 
The disciples used this word, by the way, on one of those rare occasions when Jesus stood up and rebuked the wind and the waves. You remember that story? He basically said, be still. He he said, be hushed. And the wind stopped and the waves immediately were calm. And the disciples in Matthew 8 verse 27 said, same word, what manner of man is this? In other words, what country did he come from? (laughs) This is He had to come from another God. It's like for us saying, what planet are you from? So foreign. What kind of man is this? John is writing, look at this love from God. What planet did this come from? So foreign to us. So unique. Can you believe this kind of love God has for for us? And look further at what he writes, that God bestowed on us. Don't miss that. It means we didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We didn't buy it. It was bestowed on us. It was gifted to us. This is an identity gift to us. And the verb translated bestowed is in the tense, which means it's permanent. It is irrevocable. It's not like he bestowed on you his love where you joined his family and then 10 years later he said, I can't put up with you anymore and kick you out of the family. It's irrevocable. It's unchangeable. If you understand the gospel correctly, you know that there's nothing you can do to earn or accomplish your salvation. Salvation and all of the blessings that come with it are the gift of God to you. One of those blessings, one of those gifts, is your new identity in Christ. Stephen called today's lesson simply, Identity Gift. We want you to fully understand your identity in Christ and the implications of that new identity. So we're going to pause this message right here for today. On our next broadcast, we'll do a little bit of review and then conclude this message. In addition to equipping you with these daily Bible messages, we also have a magazine that we publish monthly. We send Heart to Heart magazine to all of our wisdom partners, But we'd be happy to send you the next three issues if you'd like to see it for yourself. You can sign up for it on our website, or you can call us today. Our number is 866-48-BIBLE. That's 866-482-4253. We'd love to talk with you, get to know you, and introduce you to this resource, Heart to Heart Magazine. Call today. Between now and our next broadcast, please get yourself added to Stephen's text message list. He'd like to be able to communicate with you by text from time to time. Of course, once you're signed up, you'll be able to send a text to him as well, and he'd enjoy hearing from you. Grab your phone, because signing up is very easy. All you have to do to join the list is send a text with the word WISDOM. Here's the number. Send a text to 833-676-4051. Your message to Stephen should just be the one word, wisdom. Again, the number is 833-676-4051. 
In your first text just needs to be the one key word, wisdom. Once you're signed up and in the system, you can text anything you want. But to get signed up, it's just that one word. Please do that. I'm glad you joined us today. Be sure and tune in next time for the conclusion to today's message right here on Wisdom for the Heart. Wisdom for the Heart.